a lot of people have this problem. It's very difficult to write stories that are close to you. But what I like in terms of writing is I find themes where emotionally I can access something that is happening in my own life that I've had to contend with and try to resolve it and work it through in the writing. Hi, I'm Natasha Tony, and you're listening to Narrative Shift. Born in the historically Black community of East Preston in Nova Scotia, Floyd Kane learned how to write stories with the support of some of his family members. But before making it into the creative industries as a writer, Floyd's career took a detour into entertainment law. This stable job allowed him to survive financially, all the while facing rejection after rejection from production companies. And his experience in law is what eventually led him to his best-known project getting picked up, the legal drama Digstown. Whether it's through entertainment law or showrunning, Floyd's focus is to change the way people understand the Black experience. Here's my conversation with Floyd. Floyd Kane, how would you like to introduce yourself? How would I like to introduce myself? I would say my name is Floyd Kane. I'm a showrunner, a writer. I'm Edna's son, I'm Avery's dad, I'm Kelly's partner. I love that I get to work my passion. I'm curious about when you knew that you wanted to be in the entertainment industry, but a little bit about your path, how you got there. I honestly can't remember a time when I didn't know. Like I, I feel like I knew I wanted to write before I knew there was an entertainment industry. Mm-hmm. I knew whether it was books or writing short stories or writing plays, like I knew I wanted to write. It just was that when I was like in grade eight, so I would have been 13, I think, I taught myself how to type on a old Smith and Corona typewriter and ended up writing a novel, which no no one will ever see. Because you've lost it somewhere? You tucked it away in a safe space? Oh, no, I still, still have, have it. it? Okay. I, know where it, I know where it is. It's just terrible. I ended up going to undergrad at St. Mary's, went in as a commerce student. In my first year, I was asked by my community if I was interested in writing a play for the community. After the play was written and it was produced, I promptly changed my degree from a commerce degree to an arts degree because I just wanted to have the ability to write as much as I possibly could over the course of those three years that I was getting my undergrad. And this is not an industry that is easy if you're not from a background where there's financing or there's the ability to access financing. And so for me, like I came from an economically vulnerable background. It was really important that I was in a situation where I could provide for my mom or my dad if in fact there were hard times. And so I ended up deciding to go to law school because I figured, you know, you become a lawyer, you're never going to be poor. That's how I thought about it. You'll make a living, but you won't be poor. I went to law school, graduated, ended up moving from Halifax to Toronto to article at a huge law firm, didn't get hired back. And then I ended up kind of bumming around Toronto for like 
another couple of months, went back to Halifax, worked in politics for a year. And as that job was winding down, I had the fortune to run into Michael Donovan, who was running Salter Street Films at the time. Mm -hmm. Over the years, I'd kind of reached out to see if I could get a job there working as a junior lawyer or articling or whatever. And it just so happened that as the political job was winding down, all of the lawyers had left. And a new person had come in. I was getting ready to leave Nova Scotia to move back to Toronto. And so on the day that my flight was scheduled to leave, she said, come in for an interview. I went in for the, I went in for the job interview. And I left and flew to Toronto. And by the time my plane landed, they called and they offered me the job. Okay. So politics and entertainment. Yeah, okay. basically. You know, that old discussion about the tax credit, right? Okay. That's right. So that happened. And then just as the job with Salter Street started, I was working for them as a lawyer. A friend of mine and I had created this legal drama called Portland Street. It just so happened that prior to getting the job at Salter Street, they passed on the show. But Wayne Grigsby, who had, you know, he was one of the creators of North of 60, and he essentially looked at the script. He was like, I like you. I think there's something there in the writing. I'd like to help you develop as a writer. So at the same time as I was starting my new job as a lawyer, at night, I was working, trying to develop my skills as a writer under Wayne Grigsby's mentorship. And that kind of became the story of my life for like the next 12 years, which was this, this dual relationship with the industry where I was in the business and working as a production lawyer, but at the same time, trying to at night writing and working on scripts and trying to develop that part of my career. And then of course, throughout that journey, there was the CBC daytime open call for creating like the CBC version of Coronation Street. Which I grew up on with a very British grandmother. Yeah. So when you say Coronation, that's still a family thing that they watch it. My mom and my 99-year-old grandmother will watch it and wow. then they'll talk about it. They'll phone each other and talk about it. But all <laughs> the great. sisters will also talk about it. So I'm sad we didn't get a Canadian one. Yeah, I'm sad too because even now when I think, and I, and I think this was almost 20 years ago, when I look back on it, I just keep thinking about the writers, the directors, the actors, the crew, how the complexion of our industry would have been changed if they would have been able to move forward with this program. It would have been game changing. There were two shows that they were going to do the, you know, let's do 26 episodes and see how it goes. And we were, and we, our show was one of them. I remember when we got the call saying all the executives who are working on this file have been let go and there are new executives involved and we went in to meet with the executives and they basically said we're not doing this wow all that work cast aside and so then of course you know fast forward a couple more years you know and i met joan jenkinson and she was at vision tv at the time and they had raised money and they wanted to do a drama that is targeting racialized underrepresented groups. And so they came to 
me and they were like, well, we have this show. Are you interested in being an EP on it? And so I was like, yeah, sure, let's do it. And so it was a show by created by Andy Marshall called Soul. I think that was a show where I had decided I'm not going to be a lawyer. I ended up working for the Halifax Film Company, which was a new venture. I just decided like, if I'm not going to make the jump now, then I'm never going to make it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I ended up cashing out all of my shares in the company and using that to live off of while I was like figuring out this writing thing. And naively, you know, I, and I did the math in my head. I'm like, I just need to get three scripts a year yeah. on hour long dramas and I can make enough money to cover my expenses. I can live off that. That's, I, I just need to do that. That should be easy enough. Right. And of course it wasn't easy. Right. Because, you know, there are a couple of things I didn't realize. I didn't realize your agents don't get you the job, right? Your agents can send you out. They can give you intel. They can make introductions, but they don't get you the job. Mm-hmm. You got to get yourself the job. It's not a meritocracy. And I don't care how many panels you go to or how many times that some showrunner sits on a panel and says, oh, I hire the best writers or I've got the best writers on my show. Honestly, it's kind of bullshit. It's like, no, you hired people who you knew, who either they have the experience, so they're senior level writers who you wanted to have in your room, and or you hired juniors who you know from other jobs that you did, right? Mm -hmm. The in-group bias is what we're talking about, right? A hundred percent. I've thought about this because I never took film and TV in school. If you go to the film center, right? the Canadian Film Center, Mm -hmm. you have your people, right? If you go to the NSBI, like you have your people, any of these like writing programs, whether it's Ryerson or like, usually if you have your people, those are the first calls you make Mm -hmm. when you get your show. That's not to say that the people who are on those shows don't deserve to be in the room. What it means is that we can't keep making this point that, the only thing that gets you in the room is if you're good. Right. Because it's not. I bummed around for a bit. I think I went three years without making any money, like zero. Mm -hmm. And then one of the things, one of the jobs that I got, Karen King, who was an executive at Global at the time, she actually really pushed me for a job on a sci-fi series out in Vancouver called Continuum. Mm -hmm. I ended up going to Vancouver. I did the gig. It was interesting, in quotes. Sure. After I did that gig, I went through a period where I didn't work. And then, you know, I had a good friend who her other best friend was the showrunner Aaron Martin. He'd say, you know, I'm developing the show. Do you want to come be in this room for a couple of weeks? Or... I need someone to write a, like, just write a script for me. Can I give you the outline and you write a script? Coming out of that experience, you're working, but you're not making enough to live off of it, right? So Amos Atatui, who I'd met years ago when we did the CBC soap opera experience, we ended up having a conversation. He said, look, I'm developing a movie with this guy. Do you want to help me produce it? It all kind of fell apart. We had some development money left from Telefilm. I called Telefilm Stephanie Azam at the time. I said, hey, Stephanie, 
We're not moving forward with the project. We want to get your money back to you. Stephanie says, well, wait a second. Do you have something else that you would like to do? Mm. I said, well, actually, I've always wanted to write a movie about the race riot that happened at my high school in 1989. And that became the movie Across the Line. That kind of set off things in terms of Digstown, right? Because Amos and I started making movies together. And then he kind of said to me, look, I think the CBC are looking for a legal show. And I was like, oh, well, let me think about it. Let me call some friends. I think I have an idea. And I thought, well, let's do a a show about a legal aid lawyer. Because most legal shows, it's always about rich people being defended by like lawyers in nice suits. So let's do something a bit different. And so that's how Digstown started. Thank you for the pathway in and to be able to, you know, I'm I'm thinking about the people that you've named and the doors that were opened Mm -hmm. and that opportunity and that connection when people do see something in you and want to work with you. I think that has always been that game changer. I, I think about it in the sense of, you know, for me, predominantly it was women of color who opened up doors for me and it wasn't necessarily ever approve yourself. It was, I see you, now let's do this together. And I don't necessarily know if it was a mentorship piece of it, but I just really appreciate and honor the folks who saw the potential and allowed for um me to keep doing what it is that I'm doing each time I change careers. I I just was going to say, it's amazing. It's just because we were, I was talking this morning with a couple colleagues about this very thing, about the people who had the grace to just simply like, they made the time for you, even when there was nothing in it for them. I can go to the US and get a meeting with Perlina Ibakwe, who's the head of NBC Universal Studios, and she'll take the meeting and we'll sit and have the conversation. But there are certain executives in Canada I can't even get a coffee with. Right. You know, and this is even before I was show running, right? This was back when I just was like a lawyer trying to break into the industry. Something I've learned in my own career is like people always ask me, well, why do you always, why do you make the time? to see people like when emerging people, if I go to a conference and I'll meet people and I'll say, look, just email me, call me. We'll have a zoom. We'll go for a coffee, whatever, send me your stuff. I may not be able to do anything with it, but let's just have a meeting and I can share whatever, whatever I can share. I'll share with you. That's always the conversation. And part of the reason for that is because there have always been people along the way who they've made that time. Yeah, and there's something about being able to give back or be a part of, and I was just most recently invited to sit on the board of Black Women Film Canada. We did our first West Coast event last Thursday. I've been in the industry for 30 years here in Vancouver and just put this call out, and there were some connections already that filmmakers, Black women identified filmmakers had with the organization, but there was a whole group of people that came together for dinner and this party where 
they just kept saying, thank you. This is so necessary. We didn't know there were so many of us here in Vancouver that are doing this because we've been working in silos. Mm. And I think that Vancouver is definitely uh, more isolating in a lot of ways. And just the empowerment. And even, you know, when people were talking about, I remember talking to an AD and just feeling that frustration of not having a team and having to navigate and fight their way through. And I'm just thinking about, one, I wish this was here when I was in the early 90s coming into film and TV because maybe I would have been making films. It's not too late, but, you know, in in a different way. It's never too late. It's never too late. But it was one of those evenings where it's like, yeah, this is what it means to give back. And so my company had sponsored the event and just building that connection and how important it is to be able to give back, but also to be a part of. And I think that the collective power that was in the room, I, again, just kept saying to folks who were feeling frustrated or centering that whiteness within our industry as obstacles, I still think that there's something about thinking outside the box. And so we have this dominant culture piece, but if there's an opportunity for us to build connection, and this is me as, you know, I was raised by hippies, so I'm going to talk about the coalition building and, and you know, organizing. But the organizer in me was really like, okay, like we can do this. There's no reason why even on the West Coast we can't be creating the films and TV shows that we need to right here because sometimes I feel like we go out to the East Coast or down to L.A., but we haven't really spent the time to build that right here in, in B.C. I think the fact that you like what you hit on about the silo issue, that's really key. Yeah. I will say from my own experience, working both as a, as a producer on one show and as a, a writer on another is because BC has a very robust service industry, it can be expensive to shoot there. Mm-hmm. And it's not so much about the crew costs because those are like, baked in but in terms of you know the difference between renting a boat for a tv show in bc is different from renting a boat in nova scotia or in southern ontario and part of that is because bc truly is hollywood north yeah as as much as we we have taken that moniker and we've put it on all we've kind of made it across Canada as a reference. Really, when people talk about Hollywood North, they're talking about British Columbia. Yeah. It makes it a little bit pricier to do a show. I mean, like, I know back in the 90s, I mean, that's how long I've been in the industry for a long time. Back in the 90s, we actually did a show in BC called The Guard. And we ended up doing it in Squamish. And I remember we were like, oh, the boat is how much per day? That's right. Because we were all coming from Nova Scotia where we knew we could get a boat for like 2000 a day, right? And that would be pricey. And here they were looking for like 15 grand. Yeah, that's right. We like our film money here. <laughs> I think it was a real challenge for the show just because of the budget, mm-hmm. right? Like we didn't have the money that we needed to actually do the show the way that we would have wanted to do the show. But I also would say that 
if I'm being honest, I wasn't seeing a lot of diversity no. behind the scenes at that time. No, and I think that has changed a little bit. And, you know, I can say that even in the sense of I spent time being a union representative for IATSE for about 10 years. And yeah. so kind of got to see the, the shift. And there was about 18 different departments out here that we were representing at the time. I also, my relationship with DGC Ontario and started in 2016 and doing training with them. And I've just now seen a shift in the rooms around Black and Indigenous filmmakers that are in these leadership sessions. I'm not seeing that shift in British Columbia at the same rate that I am seeing it in Ontario. And I think it is exactly what you're talking about, kind of a closed shop service industry here that is learning how to open up and has some work to do. And so working with Different organizations, um, Creative BC has creative pathways supporting some of the work that needs to be done on creating pathways for more diverse filmmakers to make it here in, in British Columbia. And I still think that if we wait to be let in, that's a waste of our time. And that, again, coming back to this collective power and, you know, thinking about the purposefulness of being able to do exactly what you're doing, which is to inspire others, to encourage people, that sometimes that's what it takes, is to know that other people are doing it, that you don't have to take this one path, that there are so many different ways in which you can be a creative and tell your stories, that I, I'm always uh, concerned when people are feeling like they have to quit doing that passion piece of it. And I'm curious, even for yourself, around healing and writing and that inspiration. And if you could talk a little bit about what that process is for you to have an idea, to spend the time. Is there a healing component to being a storyteller? There's definitely a restorative mentally. Like it's extremely beneficial for my mental health to be writing. It's cleansing. You know, I didn't journal when I was a kid. I don't now as an adult because my mind just is too all over the place. Mm -hmm. But I find that when I sit and I write, it's not even about it being my happy place. It, it is just very much a way to kind of like let go of the day. And I think that's why even when I was a lawyer, it's like I would go to work. I'd work from like, you know, 730 in the morning until seven at night as a lawyer go to the gym, come home and have like dinner with my partner. And then I would write until three in the morning. And I think I just found it comforting in that way. Mm -hmm. A lot of people have this problem. It's very difficult to write stories that are close to you. But what I like in terms of writing is I try to find themes where emotionally, even though it's not a factual truth, emotionally i can access something that is happening in my own life that i've had to contend with and try to resolve it and work it through in the writing yeah i mean i think about when i write i feel like a lot of it is the shadow work mm. what is the lesson here what am i holding what is it that you know again i continue to repeat just in an older version of my body uh, when that continues to come up. And so just really understanding that with that idea and story that often 
kind of leaning into the shadow piece, I think, for me, is the healing part. And not to shame and blame, but that here is this other um, piece of the puzzle that sometimes I keep away unless it is about writing or thinking about the storytelling. I love that term, shadow work. What keeps you doing what it is that you do? Because we've talked about a lot of adversity. There's a lot of no's. There's a certain amount of uncertainty. You know, I think about it. I like the phrase when you talked about um, growing up economically vulnerable. And so that resonates for me. And that I perhaps haven't been vulnerable in a very long time, but that doesn't go away. And so the sense of security, the fear of scarcity is very much there. And it's almost like no matter how much I make, it's still not enough. So I'm holding that a bit, but... I hear you. It's it's that anxiety. Yeah. You don't lose it. No. And it's that motivation to keep going sometimes, I think, of, you know, what's the next? You know, when I said I liked your math, when you're like, I just need three scripts, that's me. That's me all the time. It's just like, okay, if I can just, if I just get that big fish, I'm going to be okay. And I can, you know, there's something there. There's a certain urgency that I think keeps my hustle going in whatever it is that I'm doing. And I I can root it back to um, feeling that vulnerability and wanting to take care of my people. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot when you're in this industry and you're one of one. It's not even just the casual racism that you deal with on a regular basis, but it's also as many people as there are who are trying to like help you and they see what you want to bring to the table. There are also those people who are actively and aggressively being obstacles. The other thing is that you see the people who had all this potential that the industry just crushed. There are people who I I look at and I go like, oh my God, this person could have had this career if not for X happening to them. Mm-hmm. I think for me, the thing that has kept me going, even when the going was tough, it's that whole idea of I don't know what else to do. Mm. I had reached a point where being a lawyer or a development executive or a production executive, and I'd been all those things, it wasn't enough. Yeah, I had a plan where, oh, I'll stay in my nice executive job and eventually some showrunner will recognize me and they'll say, Floyd, come on, be on my show, come to the other side. And thus my writing career would be born. And it never happened. And it was one of those moments where I had to realize it's not going to happen unless you make it happen. And that was really when it became time to go, okay, so let me invest in this dream of being a writer and let's see where we get to. I'm curious for you in the generosity that you have for others and in sharing if there are any gems um, or wisdoms that you could share with folks who are storytelling and wanting to do this as a career? The journey is not a, it's not an A to Z journey. Sometimes you have to kind of come at what you want sideways, right? I wanted to be a writer, but I ended up working as a lawyer for six, seven years in a company before I even admitted to them that I was writing. 
be persistent. That's a cliche, but I think it's really important to understand that you're not always going to have people in your corner. You're not always going to have people who are like supporters. You are going to have, you know, frenemies and people who are secretly not on your side. And you've got to just keep your head down and keep doing the work and keep pushing. And I feel like people forget to do this, but give yourself grace, right? You're going to make mistakes. You're going to have bad days. You're going to like make poor decisions. You just have to step back from it and give yourself the grace to go, you know what? I made that mistake. I did this wrong. I handed in something that wasn't my best work. But you know what? It just means that the next time you do it, you're going to do better. Mm-hmm. We are sometimes our hardest critic. Be patient with yourself. For me, there's no one path, right? Mm-hmm. Every path is unique. You can't replicate what other people have done. All you can really do is be ready. Get yourself ready, right? When the opportunity comes, just make sure that you have everything that you need to be able to take advantage of the opportunity. That's the simplest thing that I can say in terms of wisdom. It's like sometimes the opportunity comes and you're not ready. Sure. And it blows up in your face. Like I'm always saying to filmmakers, like first time directors, it's like, okay, great. You finish your first film, make sure you have your second film already in your back pocket and that you've got a third one that you're working on and a fourth one that you have a synopsis for. Because otherwise, when that opportunity comes, it's going to be four or five years before we see that next movie from you. Floyd Kane, thanks for hanging out with me. No problem. Thank you so much for having me here. That was a conversation with Floyd Kane, a lawyer, writer, director, and showrunner. If you want to learn more about Floyd's work or what he's up to right now, check out our show notes for links. Thanks for listening to Narrative Shift. This is a series produced by me, the Elevate team, and Max Collins. I'm your host, Natasha Tony. Be well, and we'll see you next time.